business leaders. So looking at your questions, I can tell you've, you've, you've done your research a little bit, or somebody did. Yeah, no, I tried to. I tried to, yeah. <laughs> somebody did. Um, yeah, so I, I saw that you were the second fastest growing company in Tampa. I don't know how recent that is. That, but was, that was last year. This year, I think we ranked 17th. Okay. Something like that. Sorry. I, I, That's really impressive, though. Yeah. Because Tampa's a very fast-growing area with a lot of new businesses and a lot of growth and... Yes, I think looking at the Tampa Fast 50 this year, um, you saw a lot of healthcare, um, which I think was a you know obviously a result of two years of pandemic and businesses able to slot themselves in to deal with pandemic level issues, mm-hmm. um, and then technology, um, and technology is a lot of the answer to those pandemic level issues. Um, answering the call for those things is is kind of what we're all responsible to do. You know, you call it the great transformation. Um, where we're going from a manufacturing, you know, manufacturing environment and culture to a service level culture, um, that service level culture changes the way we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when we talk about manufacturing, it's still very much a part of the American backbone, but the manual work is getting less and the technological work is becoming more. So how do we do it faster? Um, how do we do it with more, with less humans, but better quality. Um, and I think that's a difficult thing that we've been, we've been in the midst of doing that for 30 or 40 years. Um, it's just accelerating as we get close, uh, you know, right. as we get further and further away from the industrial revolution. Yeah. And because of what you do, um, it seems like you can kind of ride the wave of the growth in Tampa because if, if healthcare is growing and all these other industries are growing, what you do is applicable to all of those things, right? Yes. Imperium is going through its own transformation. Um, if we were to talk about the timeline of Imperium um, from startup to today, uh, we're much more of a solutions provider today. Um, you know, having solution architects on our team, developing solutions for clients is more of our more of our role today than just a reseller of information technology. Adding professional services and managed services allows us to really service the customer because when you're buying technology, I hear it all the time, well, I'm not a technology person, but um, the need for technology is important for their job, their role, their home life. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, even down to managing the content your kids can see through your Wi-Fi at home, it's a real thing through and through for every American family. So I think being able to be a solutions provider helps us kind of answer the call that a lot of people and business leaders are having to the digital transformation or the IT transformation that is kind of driving their businesses. Yeah, I noticed, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like when you started, you were kind of positioned exclusively as a VAR, a VAR, VAR, value-added reseller. But now when I look at your website... There's value-added reseller, there's managed services, there's talent consulting. Yep. These seem like newer developments. Is this how the company is scaling? We would market it, or our marketing tagline would be your IT business concierge. That's the, the marketing play. But to, to expand on that, you know, selling just a box or selling you just a router or an access point you know, was a way to start the business. I mean, so shipping out of my garage was a real thing. Um, but... Knowing the vision was always to be a complete solution. Um, people don't just want to buy just the box. Or there's a limitation to what we could be as a company if all we sold were boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were just a, a reseller. And in a lot of ways, some people could call it in our industry. They kind of talk down on it as you're pushing paper. Um, and in a way, that is what it is. Um, but it, that is the function to start. It's the it's the entry into the 
into the business. You know, we didn't hire solutions architects until we were moving and, you know, selling enough in revenue from just boxes to be able to support those architects and then to be able to bring them to projects that are interesting to them. You can't just hire a solutions architect and say, oh, you know, wait till we have a solution, you know, a solution for you to architect. You know, we had to have the business and the clientele to have conversations and to be in on their projects and their, you know, their innovations and what are they doing to then even support the employee that's going to be able to help. Um, do that. I mean, it doesn't matter what you pay somebody. A lot of people work for, you know, other things than just money. So they didn't want to just sit on the bench and wait for me to have a project for them. And they're, you know, they're expensive employees. Um, so being able to fulfill them and their, their wants and their needs and them to, you know, feel fulfilled in their job is, is difficult. So we had to become, you know, build the revenue to be able to sell enough boxes to support the solution architects. But the solution architects are the game-changing piece that really brings the IT business concierge through uh, for most clients. Um, the professional services and the managed services, and a lot of people call it MSP now, um, are the added piece. You know, that's the, do you want fries with that? Um, you know, we work with a lot of companies, Verizon, Frontier, that manage their own. They don't need us. Mm-hmm. Um, they really don't need us for much. Um, but being able to support a Beasley Media Group and their Wi-Fi would be something that we could come in, we can do the heat mapping, we can do the engineering, we can tell you why you're having issues or what those issues are a result of, and then engineer a solution to kind of make those issues go away. Um, Now, that would be a three- to five-year fix. Mm -hmm. Um, But then do you want us to manage that, um, be responsible for that, and continue to update that over five years? And that's where professional services and managed services come in. Um, The... You know, staff augmentation, that's, I cannot tell you how many times I've talked with leaders and they want to do a project, but they don't have enough engineering time. Um, you know, their people that work for them are busy on doing their normal job. You know, doing a data center refresh on top of that is hard. Um, it would be asking a lot. So they need to staff up for six months, nine months, a year um, in bringing on talent to, you know, do that data center refresh. So to do that, you know, we want to be able to help them since we intimately understand the project. We can intimately kind of help, you know, show them a small group of candidates that they can bring in for a short period of time or even a longer period of time um, to help them staff up to kind of do those projects. So that's the piece where it kind of all comes together. Um, It's built, you know, myself and Brian Hill are very much, you know, built on the VAR business or know the VAR business very well. We've hired and been been lucky enough to work with and network with people that bring the professional services and bring the managed services to the business and then bring the staff augmentation to the business. So when a business wants to hire you to bring in a team to do a project, how, how does that work? Do you... Is that sort of a dynamic model where you have essentially contacts of people? Like, I would imagine you don't have all of these people on staff all the time. And, no, if, and if you do, like, how do you manage that from a, if you have a big project come in and you need to put 10 people on site and then that project goes away? Like, these aren't people who are staying on your payroll, right? Are you just making connections? How so does that two work? Two ways. Um, one, if it's a shorter project, we'll likely use some of our on-site engineering resources and allocate them if, if, that's, a, if that's a possibility. Um, and then sometimes we do things what are called smart 
smart hands, which they just need people to connect computers and connect printers and set up an office. You know, it's going to be a three-week project. Um, and we're networked throughout the country through ASCDI and UNITA and other organizations to kind of work with other companies in those areas where we can reach out and contract, broker the contract to kind of put those smart hands in Boston versus Tampa for those three weeks. Um, but then our project managers will manage that. So we'll send one Tampa resource to that at the beginning and at the end of the project, kind of checking the box to make sure we're fulfilling that project for the client. And would those people be full-time those staff? Are, those are full-time staff okay. that work at Imperium. Okay. Um, so they'll contract other people with those skill sets that are needed to run the project, and then our project managers will solidify the project. Um, and then two, it, it usually will then be kind of built on what is the project where we might have been there from the build out of, you know, do, redoing the Wi-Fi refresh. Well, if we understand the Wi-Fi refresh and what it's going to take to change your switches and change your APs, then our engineers will engineer hours on what they think it's going to actually take to do that and then give the client the option to can they allocate their internal resources to do that project or would they want help doing that project and then at what level do you need those people you know are they people that need to run wire or are they an architect that's going to do configuration and testing so it comes down to what the need is and that's the that's the hard part you know there's a lot of it jacks of all trades um, but when technology is advancing to the point where you really need specific skill sets to do projects um, when you're talking, you know, even our solution architects, we have a solution architect, architect that's very Wi-Fi based, he loves Wi-Fi, talk anything Wi-Fi. Um, but if you ask him to do data center and he's like, I don't know anything. Um, and then we have our data center engineers who are really good at route switch and, and you know, moving tremendous amounts of data. But when they get into Wi-Fi, they kind of get, you know, I don't know. Um, and, and that's where the skill sets are changing and having the availability of those skill sets are changing. Now, the challenge for us is sometimes timing. Like sometimes a customer wants to know the answer yesterday, but our engineers aren't available um, today um, or we can't get them on site for a week. Um, and that's just business challenges we deal with every day. I think up to the Accentures of the world, they deal with those challenges. I mean, we can only bench and staff so much and be able to pull people to do certain things. And that's where professional and managed services come in. Because if people really do need that four-hour SLA, well, we have to have a contract and then we have to have resources allocated to you all the time. And that's where the professional service of allocating and being able to be there for them. So the professional service and managed services kind of come in when a, when a you know a company like Beasley may want a four-hour window to have their issues addressed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where that you can kind of expand upon that. So it's it's a difficult it's a difficult human resource piece right now to to manage. But I think along with supply chain, you know, people are getting understanding of things take time. Mm -hmm. Is the supply chain still a big issue in the technology space, or, or is the chip shortage a real thing still? Is that getting better at all? My answer to that would be I think it's plateaued. Um, I don't think it's getting any worse. Um, I don't really see it getting any better at this time. Um, we are getting some clearer futures from our manufacturers, um, but the, the problem is, and what a lot of people don't understand, is manufacturers made a lot of changes about 18 months ago to deal with this. They saw it coming. Um, I don't think they saw it as being as bad as it is um, or as it was, um, but they made changes to what chips they use, how they were using them, how they're building things. 
And with that, you know, it took 18 months in the manufacturing cycle to kind of start to come to the market. Um, and that's what a lot of people don't understand happens in the background. You know, supply chain management is a huge piece of technology and how we manage it. Um, you know, most people see it today in automakers, like, oh, I can't buy a car. Um, and that was, you know, that's a different problem. You know, those chips that were being used were just not being manufactured. Um, and then, you know, for us, uh, partners like Juniper have been very transparent on they're changing to the types of, they're changing the types of chip they're using, they're upgrading, and then here's the new latest, greatest of what we can do. Sorry it took 18 months, but here it is today. And then this can now be bought with a four to six week lead time, which is reasonable in the technology world today. Is that, was that true before the yeah, pandemic? February a- 2020, uh, February 2020, we would have, we would probably be double our current size if we would have always maintained that supply level. Yeah. Um, you know, we are limited by what we can do, but Today, I would tell you Imperium's a challenger partner. So in the IT space, everybody knows Cisco. Cisco's the biggest market share holding company. Um, I mean, John Chambers did a, an amazing job as a leader through, you know, 2015 of making them, you know, the go-to technology company. But I think today, you know, technology is changing. It's evolving. There's a lot of challenger partners that are, you know, challenging the status quo. Of Can you what, define that? What, what, you, what is a challenger partner? Challenger, so... Cisco owns the market share for the most part. And people, uh, there used to be a joke in our industry, like no one got fired for buying Cisco. Um, and it was kind of That like, was IBM a long time IBM ago. IBM was yeah. that. You're right. And, and, and actually, I recently finished John Chambers' book, Connecting the Dots, and he talks about that because he worked for IBM. You know, everybody was, you had to do it this way. And, and nobody, you failed to innovate. And when you fail to innovate, specifically over the last 50 years, um, you're really just going to get left behind. And things are going to evolve around you and somebody's going to take your place. Um, and I think Cisco is just at the top of the food chain. And they have been for 20 years, you know, since the dot-com bubble. I mean, they were the most, they were the highest valuated company in the world pre the bubble and people don't remember that they overtook microsoft um right before the bubble um and then they were 85 percent of that in a year or year 18 months um but then they rebounded i mean they rebounded they were led by great leadership and then they rebounded to own the market and now today usf is you know usf students are leaving with ccnas they're certified cisco engineers day one um, but what we're finding is there's technology that's being brought to market by Juniper, by Extreme, by Fordnet, by you know new startup companies, Grip, et cetera, that are bringing new technologies, new ideas, new ways of doing things to the market. And people are open to hearing the answer um, from a new perspective. Um, Cisco is ex- very expensive. Their licensing model, I would say, you know, I don't want to say anything negative, but I would say it can be feel predatory um, because if you're not paying for your licensing or you're not doing certain things, you can't even use the product you purchased. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's coming through all of technology. Um, Tesla is getting that way with their self-driving where the person who initially buys the car owns that self-driving license. And after that car is sold, that license doesn't follow the car, even though the car is very capable of it. So I think the you know, that's not a negative where I, I think that that's where the you know technology companies are going to force us. Um, we're seeing a lot more as a service models. Um, people aren't buying things to own them anymore. And whether you call that the generational change, um, but you're really seeing that companies want to do business that way. Reoccurring revenue is much more dependable than a shot in the arm of a sale. 
And so for them, it's about financing that and putting that into the market. Yeah, that's it, it's interesting to think about what's driving some of these changes because you know you have the consumers and what they want but companies subscription recurring revenue is a really big deal and you see it with all the subscription services and you see it all across everywhere like there was a story about bmw that got some attention about you know you have to subscribe to get the heated seats did you see that thing it's like this technology is in every bmw but we're only going to turn it on if you subscribe to it and i i don't know if that was completely positioned you know the right way but um, all companies want the recurring revenue because they don't want the fluctuations. They want to start every month with a nice chunk of, of revenue coming in. But there's also this issue of fatigue, um, you know, with consumer streaming services, like people, especially when the economy is slowing down, like people think it is now. Consumers push back a little bit. Like they, they can only accommodate so many monthly subscriptions hitting a credit card or whatever. I wonder if, I wonder if this creates an opportunity for businesses too. Very much so. Um, I think you're, you're, you're hitting a larger topic that I think is bigger than technology, and I do see it in you know, BMW heated seats. And, and I actually researched that a little bit. And what it is is it's cheaper for BMW to just manufacture it in every seat. Um, the difference is they're giving up the money because they don't want to make it a, 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 a standard option. They want to charge extra for it. But how do they continue to do that? You know, and I, I have a good friend who owns a Tesla as well. Self-driving can be $100 a month. It's just an extra $100 a month rather than $10,000. So where's the value proposition of buying it? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, PE firms and valuations and stock valuations, reoccurring revenue is significantly more valuable than, you know, big, you know, big one-time revenues or non-repeatable revenue. And so we just we're changing as a society, whether, you know, whether you talk IT service or you talk, you know, the services business. Um, I can say today I know based on valuation, you know, our managed services and professional services business is valued four to five times more than our value added business. So our value added reselling business needs to be five times bigger than our professional service to be at the same level. Uh, when you talk valuation, I would argue that you know, the value added resource business is more important. And maybe that's my own personal feelings, but I understand that in the market, the valuation is different. It seems like the value added reseller business though, is more commoditized. It it seems like it would be easier uh, to compete with you or vice versa, harder for you to compete because I mean, you're, you're reselling equipment and there seems to be lower barriers to entry there. And it seems less specialized. My, my answer to that is it's very much a relationship level business. Yes, Amazons of the world can make point click buying, but your point click buying, I think for me, I think the level's at about a thousand dollars. If somebody doesn't understand why they're spending over a thousand dollars, they're going to want to interact with a human to understand and finish that purchase. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw the Carvana crash recently. It, it's a great business model. They might be a little ahead of their time. And I think that's the difference when you come to the value-added reseller market. When you're buying technology, you want advice. You want to talk to an engineer. You want to understand why or what that value is going to do for you extra. Now, a lot of consumers are doing their own research, and they've come to a lot of their own conclusions. So sometimes it's just the validation of, this is what I read. This is what I know. Is this true? And 
you know, as much as Amazon and CDW in our world, you know, can be that point click, there's also the valuation of an opportunity. So when you're putting it together, a $100,000 opportunity, there's discounts available, there's pieces available, just like when you're buying a car, when you get a manufactured discount. Similar to that, that's available in the IT space when you're going to standardize on Juniper Networks over Cisco, or if you're going to replace, you know, Cisco with Aruba. Aruba is willing to pay or give you a deeper discount to buy their products so you will replace the market leader. And so working through all that and managing that, then managing its delivery, um, because that's the other piece that's becoming very hard. Licensing is extremely difficult to keep track of, to pay for, and then to make sure you're getting the correct licensing, because it's like the 31 flavors of Baskin-Robbins. You can choose it any way you want. Uh, but what's the right version for the customer is a very difficult thing to to get through. Do the companies like CDW... Um, do they position themselves as a VAR? Like, do they provide a higher level? It's obviously a higher level of service than Amazon where you're just trying to pick what you want and you order it. Mm-hmm. Can you work with those companies like a VAR? Or do they- yes, you, you, 100% you okay. can. Um, what I think people in the industry know is you'll pay more um, if you want point and click to just buy and that's just your applicable price. Um, you will pay a little bit more. Um, CDW's done a great job and they're, and I look at them, I read their, te- I read their 10K and their 10Qs. I mean, that's, they're one of the people you need to pay attention to in our market. Um, and they're trying to get into services. They're trying to expand services. They're trying to make services easier. And I think it's just very difficult. Um, it's very much a relationship sell and commoditizing it too far kind of loses its relationship based piece. Um, and the only way you can do that is charge more. Um, so some people are buying it, you know, and, and it works. Um, it works for them. Um, unfortunately, it's, you know, it's very, it's a very customizable solution that's needed in the market. And that's where the human element still comes in. Um, our mm-hmm. salespeople are not overly technical, um, but they can connect the right engineers. They can connect the right manufacturing Partners to then work with that client to solve the issue at a higher level than point and click buy online. Yeah. So let's talk about how you started this because sure. you, you started this not that long ago, 2017? Yep. 2018. And July 1st of 2018. So year one, you sold, you sell 800K worth of this stuff basically out of your garage is, yep. is the way I understand it. Yep. So that's kind of what I was talking about, where the barriers to entry seem low. Like a person or a couple of people can just start doing this. Um, so I want to hear more about it because it's it sounds too simple. So there had to be some magic there because this you're selling you know equipment, you're selling network equipment and things like that. It's not impossible to do, and there's a bunch of companies doing it. And there's a bunch of very well established websites you can go to. Like I know we have several vendors we go to for this stuff. It seems very competitive. Like, tell me how you started it and how you ramped it so quickly. So I, I would give you that, you know, you, if you, you know, scroll through Instagram, start your Amazon business today, you know, go to this website, be able to buy the product from China at a cheap price, know what it sells for on Amazon, buy it, move it to Amazon, sell it on Amazon, make your profit. You know, people are making $20,000 a month, $30,000 a month doing that. And, and I think in a way, anybody can. You know, that low barrier to entry is kind of there. If you're willing to do the research, you have a little bit of that broker hustler mentality. I think it's a mentality that is necessary. Um, But you can self-sustain. And and I probably, 
Brian and I could have continued to do that out of my garage and probably made more money than I have to date. Um, but if I would have just stayed that way mm-hmm. um, and and not invested in building a company, but the vision was always bigger than that. Um, and what it takes to be bigger than that is is different. Um, I mentioned earlier we've transformed from just a VAR value added reseller, and you know that key word is value. I mean, resellers are you know very easy to just be a reseller. Adding value to that is in the beginning is about relationships. So it's about having that relationships, working with that customer, understanding what that customer has, and then connecting the dots. You know, customer A needs you know ONTB. We find that ONTB is available you know, at vendor C, how do you connect A to C and you're in the middle, you know, fixing the problem for A um, and then marking it up from there. So yes, conceptually, it's a very easy entry to business and you can, you can work out of your garage or get a very small storage space and, and hold inventory and move things around if you have relationships in this industry, in the IT industry. Um, if you were to just start in your garage and not know, it, it would be difficult. I think if you came to work for an Imperium and then wanted to do that, you probably could. Um, it would be a long time um, and it would take a lot of lot of effort. It's a lot of grind um, that, you know, I don't know that necessarily everyone's cut out for. Right. Um, but, but that goes for any entrepreneurial yes, vision, you know. But, Brian and I had bigger visions than that and always did. Um, and so for us, it was, you know, selling boxes. We got to about October of November of that first year and go, okay, we have a real business. We know how this works. Um, people always talk about the, I mean, we didn't take our first paycheck for five months. I mean, mm-hmm. saw zero money out of the business for five months. But what that was, was building our AR balance, building the fundamentals of the business to go further. Um, we got some angel investment. Um, when I say angel investment, it's just interest-only loan that really kind of helped us fund more deals. And that really threw gas to the fire. Um, where we was were, that primarily to buy inventory? Yes. It was okay. 100% to fund opportunities. Um, right. You know, you, you have to buy you have to buy things. And when you're a new company, it's cash up front. There's no credit lines. And you have to pay up front. And then you have to wait 30 days in business or 45 or 60 days to get paid um, from your client. So it's funding that turn. Um, and that's where in year two, I think it was one point six million something like that um in in year two and that's really kind of the change um and that's where things really started to kind of we just kept reinvesting in the business we kept reinvesting um i think one thing people don't understand like oh you know i think it's glamorized to be an entrepreneur and you're going to make all this money and you're going to be on private jets in six months it's just not true um you know it takes a long time and investing in the business our equity in the business has doubled about every six or seven months. And, and that's a lot of just building through that equity to kind of continue to do more. Um, ask me today, we spent more on payroll in our first six months than we did all of last year. So for us, it's investment in people. Um, you know, a lot of business owners forget that. Um, it's the people that really drive the business and, and having them be productive assets um, to the company is where we're ultimately looking to get them to. Yeah, well, you're also, it seems like, evolving the services portion, which is more people focused. Yes. And, and they are a, you know, highly compensated employee is, is the person that does that service. You know, a lot of people, some people still balk, like, why is the service? I think our standard rate's $185 an hour. Why is this $185 an hour? Well, it's because you have them for eight hours and then you don't have to pay them again. 
Um, right. You know, and that is that's my risk as a business owner to keep them busy um, and keep them engaged and keep them under billable hours. Um, so that's my task. Um, where you know, from a, you know the other side, the customer side, it's you know this is a person that can come help you fix your issue and leave, and you, you didn't have to go through the process of hiring somebody, maybe paying a recruiter, and then having them you know sit on the bench when you only need them eight hours a month. Right. Was there a was there an initial client, like a big client relationship? Or you often hear when people start businesses, and I had the same experience um, when I started a marketing firm. There was a client that allowed me to launch, and I'm like, okay, if these people say yes, it'll be enough for me to get started and do what I need to do. Was there a similar thing with you? Yeah. So if, if Brian Hill were here, he would tell you the story of how we how we kind of got started. Um, you know, he went on a, a three week road trip of just kind of rallying the troops. Here's the new thing, and um, he does it. He does. It. I can't. I can't replicate it. But you know, he tells a story about. You know, it says. You know, business executive, Brian Hill, like sales executive. That's all it said. Not co-founder of a two-person company shipping out of her garage. Um, you know, he said business executive. And I think I had a, I, I <laughs> kept a manager title or something. And I was like, oh, I'm the manager. He's the sales guy. Like, yeah, no, yeah we're the co-founders. But nobody knows that right away. Um, but there was two, there's two clients of note. And, and I, I feel okay naming them because we have such a great relationship. Um, our first PO came from a company out of Minnesota, um, CTC Communications. Uh you know, Mike was Mike has since passed away. So if you ever come into my office, there's a there's a plaque um, with our first PO and Mike. Mike unfortunately passed away in a, in a house fire um, a few years back. But he was the first person to believe in us, the first person to send us a PO, and that it's kind of. But he also we also did a lot of business with him in the first six months and, and prior to his passing. I mean, he really supported us and appreciated us, and and that's where I would say it's really a relationship based. Uh, piece and then um, also I would say Optical Tell out of South Florida um, and I don't mind naming these guys because Javier has been so good to us in so many ways and we continue to work with him to this day um, and he's actually taken advantage of all three business lines at Imperium so he's used us in all three different facets of how we do it um, he's trusted us he's given us honest feedback about how we can improve or how we can do better and I think you know, those two companies, and, and like I said, from a relationship standpoint, I have no problem naming them. My competitors can, good luck. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's really, they trusted us to kind of be that be that right service provider for them. And a lot of that was just based on relationship, based on knowing them. Pre-existing. Um, working with them. And then your co- Brian, your co-founder. Yep. He had a technical background, correct? Actually, no. No. Uh, Brian is Brian's a, a history major. Um, from a from a from that standpoint, and I hired Brian when he was twenty four, uh-huh. um, and you know he came from the staffing world, um, and in that you know we got to working together. The thing is, if you look at um, one of the things Imperium does is we do culture indexing. Um, so we kind of know who you are kind of at your core. And that's kind of one of our deciding factors on if if you're the right person to invest in in sales. And I didn't have this when I hired Brian, but Brian's very detail-oriented. Um, he really is very good at connecting the dots. I always say sales in our industry is like the matching game when you flip flip the cards over and you know have to match the two and then they come off the board. Um, he's very, very good at that. So in his first year, he he... 
he had tremendous effort, um, tremendous relationship building, but also attention to detail. He remembered everything. Um, so he could call somebody back and remember the conversation and then go back through it. And that's one of the things that I have as well. Like, I have a really hard time with names. I'll, um, some people that probably know me have probably run into me and I don't remember your name, but I'll remember what college you went to. I might remember, you know, your wife and kids and, and where, where else you've worked in, in the world. But that detail orientation where the name doesn't always come back to me, but I'll remember what we talked about when we talked. Was it five years ago? And I usually do a really good job of building that. And that's kind of my mental piece. And Brian has that technical technical piece where he remembered when he had conversations with engineers, which pieces went with other pieces. And so he was always able to connect the dots and, you know, Google's all of our best friends, but we can Google data sheets and, and read engineering documentation to kind of put those projects together um, from a sales perspective. So is it safe to say then you've developed your subject matter expertise along the way as you've built, built the business? Yes, it's 100% an experience-based book of knowledge. I tell this to our sales reps, um, you know, it takes them nine to 18 months to really become effective salespeople in our industry. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is learning the technology. I mean, I could put them in class for two months and teach them everything. None of it will make sense until they get on the phone and talk with an engineer or talk with somebody trying to solve a problem. And then they have to fix it. Um, I think the sales culture index or the way People in sales think they're very autonomous, high social, not a lot of thinking. But, you know, for us, we look for a high attention to detail. Um, and that's really what will drive salespeople in our industry is that attention to detail and then the want to learn the technology. Um, learning why Wi-Fi 6 is an upgrade to Wi-Fi 5 is, is pretty simple value add. But what does it mean to the customer takes time? And you, you kind of need to get that feedback from the customer before you really kind of understand it to be able to to tell others about it. So what was the approach in the beginning to customers? So you're calling on companies, you're hoping to work with them on their equipment needs. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, for sure, they're much more of an expert on this than you are. So what what is the value proposition? Is it just that you'll be the team that'll go and do the homework and bring them ideas and solutions? Like, that, How do you position yourself as a value if, if you don't even know as much about the equipment as they do in the beginning stages? Like what, what was that like? So there's, there's two pieces to that. Um, yes, and, and I would say in 2018, it was very much the value of expediating the process of buying for the customer so they can continue to focus on their job. Um, and would they tell you, like, listen, we're, we're looking for, you know, this type of equipment, uh, like sort of give you the specs and then yep. you go out and do it. And, so, and it's less of them saying, well, what do we need to buy? And, and you telling them engineers are very, you know, a lot of engineers are very high level. They they do their own homework. They know what they want. The process of buying it isn't always so transparent. And there's a lot of equipment out there you can't just go to CDW and buy, and that's controlled by the manufacturers. Um, you have to register their name. It has to be – we have to tell them where it's going. Um, when you talk about licensing and service, there's a whole process we have to go to. So that's the value – a little bit of the value to the engineer is I'm going to go do that process for you because mm -hmm. it's kind of daunting. It's a little administrative, um, but it's what you need to kind of get your licenses or to do what you need to do for their business, whatever that goal is. Um, and that's a lot of the 2018 answer to your question. Yeah. Um, the 2022 answer to your question is deeper and bigger than that. For us, it's about understanding why. And then we will, you know, we, our engineers are on calls all day long with our, our customers talking about those whys. 
And if there is a better solution or is there a cheaper solution, how could that be implemented or where could that be effective for that business? So today we talk a lot more about why and the business culture of why um, than we do about the technical pieces. And that's truly what a salesperson for us today is doing is they're trained on, you know, a lot of why Wi-Fi 6 over Wi-Fi 5, but also, why do you upgrade your switching from 1 gig to 10 gig to 40 gig to 400? Um, they're trained on the whys. So their, their job or their value is recognizing that a client is having these needs or having these pain points and then bringing the correct engineers to the next conversation to help them understand that. And that's a long sales cycle. It's not a... You know, it's not a one-time, get it done, sign the paper, okay, I'm on to the next one. It's a long relationship-developed sales cycle. Um, for us, we're even Imperium, you know, over the last three months has put on two trainings locally with our partner, Juniper, telling the story of Juniper. Juniper's got a great new story with Mist and, and you know, what that's doing to revolutionize management of IT resources. And so we did trainings. We did two boot camps, two days. One was in our office here in Tampa. One was in Orlando at Champions Gate and brought in customers to say, hey, let's take your engineers through the technical discussions. And it gave them an opportunity. Not all of them were Juniper customers, but it gave them an opportunity to say, Juniper's kind of this new it thing let them learn more about why that can be a potential solution for their business. Are you affiliated with uh, the manufacturers? Like, for instance, um, there are companies that will help you implement, um, you know, tech stack for a sales department, Mm -hmm. and they are Salesforce. They implement Salesforce. That's the product they implement. You don't get to just tell them, hey, I'd rather have HubSpot. They're like, no, we're Salesforce people. Or like a marketing agency, same thing. It's like we come in and our, we help you set up HubSpot to manage your content. Like, do you affiliate with certain manufacturers or are you sort of agnostic to the platforms? A little bit of that is dictated by manufacturer, but, um, and I'll just say, I'll say this part of the reason why I, I, I say I, I appreciate and learn the Cisco story so much, but Cisco is a very difficult manufacturer to work with as a partner. Um, so we are not a Cisco partner by choice. Um, we are a Juniper partner by choice. Juniper is probably one of the bigger competitors to Cisco. And we feel today from a technology standpoint that their their story of why is really compelling to a lot of businesses and why you would you would change your Cisco art you know your Cisco architecture to Juniper going forward. And a lot of IT companies have become agnostic where they all work with each other. They don't block each other out or whitewall each other to kind of not allow the business to ever change. That's always been kind of demanded by a lot of CIOs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so for us Imperium goes by what's best for the customer. Um, In our fundamentals, you'll hear about win-win. It needs to be a win-win for the customer and for Imperium to be a good deal for everybody. Um, So in that, it's what's best for the customer. And the answer is it's different for every customer. Um, Beasley Media Group may need a very different tech stack than Imperium Data does. And why and what security and how we go to market is very different. So what stack I need is very different than what stack you may need. And it's not my decision. It's really the decision of the business and engineers to kind of, you know, present those options. And when you talk technology, cost is a significant piece. As we talked about earlier, cost is significantly always rising. And all of our manufacturers have raised the price this year. I mean, that's not that's not new. But it's how do you manage that cost for the right stack that you need? So we don't 
marry any one stack and say this is the only stack we do um we are juniper elite plus partners so we do lead with juniper and aruba first um and but, that's are, a, but that's a choice that's a choice yeah. and, and those are we our engineers are very trained on why and where those are positioned but i've worked we work with plenty of cisco customers on other pieces of their network we have a lot of cisco customers right now that are doing aruba wi-fi and they're running Aruba Wi-Fi on Cisco switches. And that's the way they made those choices for a multitude of reasons. Um, but that's what made sense for that business. Yeah. On your website, um, you have the 26 fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Tell me the backstory on that. I would say that's a modern take on your core values. Um, really, the way those 26 were- is a lot, though. So Most people have like five. Oh, I'll tell you why it's 26. Um, so our core values, we wrote out six core values. We wrote out a mission and vision statement back in 2018. And that was really Brian and I whiteboarding and you know coming up with how we wanted the company culture to ultimately look like. And it's evolved over time. But we stay close to those fundamentals. But those fundamentals are really our six core values rewritten. Um, in shorter, more concise, easily applicable statements. You know, integrity is a great core value. What's that mean? And what's that mean to the employee? Well, it's going to mean something different to every employee. So those fundamentals really come down to trying to break down those core values into shorter, smaller statements that are concise and easy to understand. The other thing we do is we talk about those fundamentals. Our weekly, Brian Hill's more of the literary than me, he puts out a weekly email to the team, and we, we address each fundamental every week. So that's why there's 26. We cover them, each of them, twice a year. So every week we talk about, you know, blameless problem solving, check your ego at the door, um, deliver results. What's the mean? Like, what's that mean for the team? And that's different from our marketing coordinator to our VP of sales, um, you know, to the logistics guys that are, are shipping. Those can be different, but they're applicable to everybody in the organization. So those fundamentals are really just a modern take on core values to break them down a little bit and make them easier to understand. Um, if you come to our office, we have, we have um, uh, panels up that like have all 26, but then the top six fundamentals, if you go back and look at them, are really our core values, just really kind of broken down. So yeah. the first six, if you look at it, are really kind of the core value statements, and then the rest of them are concise statements to further explain those. Why is practice blameless problem solving so important? I think that comes down to culture. I think one of the things for me, and I've said this to certain people, um, one of the things you'll notice is Brian nor I, you know, as co-founders, neither one of us carry a CEO title. Um, I think it comes down to people being able to work together. A lot more can be done as a team than can be done as individually. Um, and it needs to, you need to understand that a lot of times mistakes happen. They're going to happen. They're always going to happen. But I, we've come, you know, I've worked in organizations where fear was kind of fear of making a mistake paralyzes people. And we really just never wanted that to be a thing. We want people to make mistakes, understand their mistakes, learn from their mistakes. If they try and hide it and sweep it under the rug and never talk about it again, they really don't learn and they're probably susceptible to doing it again. But they also, you also need to keep open communication with those people to be able to talk about it. Why did we make the mistake? What were you thinking at the time? Okay, here's why I think differently or here's why I think it didn't work out. Monday morning quarterbacking is really easy. You know, every... 
analyst on ESPN is great at it. But I think it allows us to have good conversation and saying, I'm I'm not blaming you, but here's how I feel we can do better going forward. Or we'll talk about our process. What process do we have? Where did the process break down? And processes always have holes in them um, if you really break them down. So, you know, is that just a hole in the process and we have to try and be diligent to not let it happen? Or is it something we can actually process out? I also saw an interview with you where you said there's a six to nine month grind before an employee can contribute value to to an organization. I think that ties nicely with the practice blameless problem solving because during that 6 to 9 month grind where you know someone is trying to learn the business and get to the point where they're contributing value, they're going to make mistakes, yep. right? And so to make it through that grind, which is going to be hard enough on its own, you also don't want to feel like your employer is constantly playing the the gotcha game with you. Yes. So how do you set that expectation with employees. Do you verbalize that to them? Do you, yes. do you okay. Yes, I mean I'm very clear about that and and don't get me wrong, I think any good salesperson when they hear me say that, they say you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to do it in 2 months. I'm going to be successful. And and one of the things about our model and this is a little bit in the industry, we have, you know, uncapped commission policies. Like they can make as much money as they want. And there's there's people in this industry that make seven figures plus and they're just they're that good and they know they have those relationships they work with those types of customers that buy that much that they make that much um and that's really probably the draw for some but what they have to understand is that six and i even say it's up to 18 months i mean six to nine months before you maybe break even 18 months before you're an asset um so that's difficult for young people sometimes to understand so when we hire a young salesperson we're looking at it's going to be 18 months before you make us a dime and that's our investment in them um and we don't beat that to them but we say hey this is it's up front this is what it's going to take and I, I can tell you, every young sales rep and, and one of our VPs who is employee number two talks about, she's like, I think I still have bruises on my forehead from bashing my head. And it just takes that time. Um, it takes that grit to kind of get through those sales process, to stay close to the sales process, to know you've got to make the phone calls. You have to leave the voicemails. You have to send the emails that nobody's going to get back to you for months. And one of the things I tell them is, there's a lot of other people like you doing the same thing. Some of it is just time in the seat. Some of it's just being around nine months from now, sending nine months of emails, and they go, you hit them on a day that they have a problem, and they're like, you know what? Let me give Blake a try, and let me try to see if that if he can help me here. Right. And then it's your time to shine. And for us, you know, our operations people um, and you know, salespeople's account managers are empowered to really kind of get creative. And you can't have that if people are worried about making a mistake or if, if something's so built to be a machine that that problem, you know, if they make a mistake or, you know, we've done deals losing money um, to get our vendor numbers, to work with that client, to deliver on what we needed to so we can continue to work on building that relationship going forward. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to career growth trajectory, when you're talking to your people about their progression and how they can grow, I also saw that you said something about, you know, you want to think about it like you need to be generating five to six times your salary, like at a minimum. Like yep. if you want to make X amount of money, like if you want to make $100,000, you should be thinking about that as, am I making the company five or $600,000 in revenue? Right. So I think that's a great conversation because oftentimes 
particularly younger people, they'll come in, they want to know how they can grow and how they can get their next raise and all that. And, and it's helpful to have a conversation about, well, let's make a business case for this. If you want to make X amount of money, there has to be a business case behind that. Yep. So how do you how do you do that with your people? So I think you have to think about it. And, and I learned this very young. So um, obviously, you can look at my background, so you'll figure this out. But when I was at Deloitte, and I started doing billing on projects, and I realized that I was making $40,000, and I was but they're billing you out at, for $500 an hour. Yep. Um, that's kind of a realization as a young person, like, oh, businesses are real. But what you didn't, what you don't understand, even at that time, is there's, you know, partners that have to be paid for, people that sold the deal, there's administrative, there's back end, there's support and infrastructure and office. I mean, you have five floors of a, of a high rise. That's not cheap. Right. Um, you there's don't understand. Debt service. There's right? all kinds of things, yeah. You don't understand that there's that much more on top of you. I mean, even just using insurance. Like, people don't understand. I mean, our insurance bills are six figures plus, And people are like, oh, you're just a startup. I'm welcome. I mean, but those are the costs of doing business. So I think for, why I say five to six times is, you know, a lot of people want to raise or they want to earn more money. And, and I, I wish I could pay everybody a million dollars. The truth is that I, that wouldn't answer the problem for everybody. They could earn a million. Next year, they're going to want a million one. Um, mm-hmm. So whether, you know, no matter your role in the organization, I think in any job, I think you have to think about what value are you providing or continuing to provide. Um, I think down to, you know, even I'll use fast food workers. If you if, if, if Chick-fil-A knows they have a great employee, they'll continue to pay them more because the replacement cost is more than they're willing to bear to replace them. And I think that that's true in any job across, I mean, from CEO down. I mean, you can look at a high-level tech CEO. If you're not increasing the value of the stock, they're replacing you. Um, so I think learning how you increase value um, – will help kind of dictate how you can even substantiate when you want to go to your manager and say, I need a raise. Needing a raise is is relative, but it's why. Um, And I think if more young people can understand that that's the business case you need to make. um, So it's not an opinion any longer. It's I need a raise because I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Or over the next year, I'm going to add this certification. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to produce X amount more in revenue. Well, then your raise becomes a business proposition and not about feelings. And that's what I really think it comes down to. I think so many people feel a certain way, but you can make the case to where it's not about anybody's feelings and you justify why. And then if you know the answer is still no and you feel like you've justified it, then you know then obviously that person needs to make a decision for themselves. Right. Was entrepreneurship always the goal for you? I always thought I had it in me, um, even from a young a young person. My dad owned his own business. Um, you know, going through school, getting an accounting degree, um, working in Big Four. I kind of thought I was going to be a corporate guy for forever. Um, you know, I got burned out um, after about eight years. I was kind of, you know, unfortunately in that world. I said, you know, hey, I'm I'm young. I'm single, not married yet. I don't have kids yet. Like, let me just do whatever, you know, whatever you guys want. And they took advantage of that. Um, and I traveled a lot and I, but I learned a ton. Um, a, a lot of that makes me successful today or gave, gave me the, the, the backbone of what I work off of today. And I would say that to any entrepreneur. Um, I think you need to work for some people. Um, you need to work for organizations you may want to be like, 
so you can learn and understand their pros and their cons and, and what you think you can do better. Um, so entrepreneurship wasn't always a thing. I always kind of thought about it. I was always looking for the right avenue, the right idea, the right business case to say this is something I want to do for myself. Um, and even the company before Imperium, you know, I had an option to buy in and things like that. So I think ownership was always a part of it and what I wanted to work towards. In a lot of ways, people would say that, you know, going from working at a big four accounting firm to spinning up, uh, you know, business out of your garage, like it's polar opposite ends of the spectrum. So what are the things that what are the parallels? Like, what could you take and, and, and implement? The, the day I walked into the Big Four, I thought I would be a partner at the Big Four. And that was the mentality. And I think the Big Four does a great job of recruiting people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got offers from two of the Big Four, and, and that was really kind of it. And a lot of, when I look back at the people I started in those classes with, they were all like that. Um, or... To that extent, anyway. Like what? Describe the profile of they, that person. They were they were very driven, very high end. They believed they would be partners. They knew they were best of best in class mm-hmm. the day they walked through the door. And that's that's a mentality. I don't think I'm any better than any of the people I went got through school with. Right. I mean, no matter what the grades might have said. Um, and I think, and I didn't have the best grades. I know there was people that didn't get offers at Deloitte that had better grades than me. But I think what they saw in me was probably what what has come through in my career is that entrepreneurial spirit. Because I think they know they need that at the partnership level eventually. Now, I didn't make it that far. Um, but there's a long story to that. Um, but I think today, that I don't think that that's very different in that I'm very well equipped from my four years at the big four to run a company today. And I think I, I tell the story a lot. I, I was never a wine person. I, I came from West Virginia University, college kid. It was my fourth week at Deloitte. And uh, I flew to Pebble Beach for a meeting with a partner. And we went to dinner, nice steakhouse, way out of my element. And, you know, the partner said, pick the wine. Well, it's one of those restaurants where, <laughs> where the price isn't next to the bottle. You don't get to and, and the list looks like a phone book, The right? list looks like a phone book. And, you know, from there, I, I chose correctly. I chose cake bread. Great job by me. Total gas. Um, it's got cake in it. But it's got to be good. I, you know, I then took a wine class, like learning regions and why and how, because I was then like, I'm not going to get caught out there again. And I think that's what entrepreneurs need. Like, we're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. I mean, I can tell you times we've lost tens of thousands of dollars on different things and ways we could have been better. But going back to your blame is problem solving, if I dwelled on that and I beat myself up over, you know, losing $15,000 on a deal, then I'm just paralyzed to do the next one. Um, So I think it kind of comes full circle with that entrepreneurial spirit is even what our sales reps need. Um, They need to be able to take a risk, lose money on a deal. I mean, because they lose a bit of commission when they do that, um, their portion, but they're building towards the future. Yeah. Um, And that gives them skin in the game, too. Actually, that's that's a great way to do that. You know, you can. You can take a deal that's not as good as it needs to be, but we both understand that we're doing this for a bigger purpose, and you know you're going to pay a little price in the commission, and the company's going to pay a little price, but yes, it aligns their needs with with the companies, I guess. Yes. So by training, you're an accountant. That was your education, mm-hmm. but obviously, uh, sales is a big part of what you do, mm-hmm. um, and a big part of your success. 
it's not always uh, it's not always common for somebody that, that has a strong accounting background to be a, a sales. But a lot of times people go into accounting specifically because they don't want to be the front of the business mm-hmm. and in sales. So it's a it's an unusual but valuable skill set. How how important has sales proficiency been for what you've done with Imperium? I think what most people don't understand is is everyone is selling in, in their own way, no matter what their job role may be. Um, I read a great book a long time ago, Sell or Be Sold. I mean, going down to the three-year-old that wants cake for dinner instead of, you know, chicken. Um, they're selling you on they want the cake and not the chicken. Um, and I think that that's happening for everyone. Um, I think understanding that or being conscious of that is is not always taught um, or people don't have that realization. Um, in terms of sales proficiency, I really do enjoy it. I and mean, even today, I don't sell enough. I mean, I tell people around me, I like to get involved in deals. That's still what gets my juices flowing, um, gets me excited to get out of bed or keeps me up at night. Um, so those are, that's still what gets me going. But I like putting deals together. Um, for me, I get a lot more. I get involved with my with my reps on bigger deals that maybe require financing or some creative pieces to them, um, whether it be as a service or lease or whatever that may be. Um, Those are the deals I like to get involved in and kind of get to see and work Mm -hmm. with the customer on. And that gets me involved. I'm I'm probably one of the better people in the building to deal with a CFO um, versus an engineer. Um, So it helps, you know, that kind of really built me for that. Um, That's what I'm doing more today. I mean, my title is COO. I'm really running operations you know, and finance in terms of running that, but I'm still very connected to the sales team. Um, I think sales is an important piece of everyone's life. Um, I think, you know, get, gaining a knowledge and a consciousness of those basic skills is something that's needed. I mean, down to balancing your checkbook, I think it's it's kind of one of those needed skills that not everybody gets. Um, but for me, I've, I've learned a lot of it from reading, reading people that, you know, either have done it before um, or are better at it than me and kind of taking little bits and pieces from all of them and developing in it to my skill set. Are you currently hiring salespeople? Are you building out that team? Yes. How many people do you have? So currently there's 14. There's two more slots slotted for this year. Um, and then we'll look. At, we'll start to look and plan for next year in October. What does that role entail? Uh, depends on what level they're coming in at. Um, you know, veteran sales reps, I'd probably always hire a veteran sales rep if they become available. They're really, it's a very difficult thing in our industry for contracts and many other reasons and mm-hmm. relationships. And for them, it's like starting over. So that's a... a a pay cut, so to speak, for them. So that's very difficult. Um, is it like starting over, or is it the type of business where a veteran sales rep could bring in a book of business? Or do I, they pretty much have to leave that behind? We said earlier it's 9 to 18 months. For a veteran sales rep, it's probably like 4 to 9. So it just cuts their time in half. Um, is that because they can build it back faster, or, yeah. or do they bring stuff with them? It's They really can't. Most of the time, because of contracts, they can't bring anything with them. Right. Um, but they understand how to put a deal together. They understand how to build relationships. They understand technology. So they're ahead of that curve. Um, so I would say it shortens. It about cuts it in half of what a, an out of out of college student is going to need mm-hmm. um, to get there. But then they're also very conditioned in their sales skills. They, you know, great salespeople, the difference between a good and a great salespeople, I always say is the good sales, you know, the great salespeople are going to do the sales process every day, just knowing that it works. You know, there's days none of us feel like it, um, but they're going to do it that day because they know that that's what's progressing and that's what's going to keep them moving forward. The good grit, pe- the element of grit. Yeah. And that the good, the good guys will take the day off once in a while. And mm-hmm. I, it, very much, 
you know, Imperium, we have 20 PTO days. And for me, that's mental health. Like a lot of that extra days, people are like, why do you give so much time off? Even for year one people, it's like, because the job's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mentally challenging. It's mentally taxing. You know, you need the time to hit the reset button. Um, so taking that time and, and working off of that kind of helps people reset. So for non-veteran people, if you're bringing in entry level or mid-level, um, what kind of process do you have to get people ramped up? So we do about a week-long training. Um, it's five modules, and then we have them train some of the technical stuff with our partner portals. Our partners provide a lot of the technical training for us. We talk about sales and the why and who you're selling to and who you're going to be targeting and, and things like that. And, and that takes about a week, week and a half, and then we get them on the phone. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. I've seen some you know, one of our reps who has had, who has the biggest, biggest personality, like the most, you know, his first day on the phone, he, he looked like a deer in headlights, um, you know, and then we kind of, you know, supported him and helped him kind of understand. And now he, you know, he makes, he's always top of the leaderboard and calls and talk time and, and things like that, because he's learned how to bring that personality out, um, mm-hmm. on the phone and get in front of people, how to set meetings, feel comfortable setting a meeting, feel comfortable walking into a customer site. That's the stuff that takes um, and you don't always have those opportunities, but we try to recreate those opportunities. A lot of it mentioned those boot camps were a chance for our reps to invite their customers to come train for free. And also then, you know, we had a happy hour after the training. So everybody could kind of decompress a little bit, meet each other, get to know each other and work together on a, you know, humans work best, you know, when they know each other outside of just the business standpoint. Yeah. As a technology company, do you have a lot of technology enablement? Um, on the sales side, do you have sort of an extensive tech stack? Are you using auto dialers and CRMs and enrichment and all that kind of stuff? So we did invest in technology early. Um, so we have an ERP system that we're currently replacing. We're going to Dynamics Business Central, which is just Microsoft's stack. But uh, we also married ourselves to the Microsoft stack uh, with Dynamics CRM. I think it was like month five and there was it was just me and brian uh me brian and Lindsay. there's three of us and we bought a very high level crm we probably had no business buying in month five but we understood that having that information building that database understanding our customers what they're buying when they're buying it how they're buying it um and then knowing for us it's the long game i mean if somebody does a wi-fi refresh well you better know in three years to start calling them to talk about the next one um and that's a lot about we we preach to our reps is like you know may talk to somebody and if they said hey we just did a wireless refresh last month well you better put a note in the system to call them in three years and so how are you going to do that it's got to be in the system for that note to come up in three years um to say hey it's been three years since you did your wireless refresh are you happy do you like it are you starting to look yet no. When do you think you're going to? Two years from now? Okay. You know, and then set your future reminders. And if you don't have that, you won't remember. Um, there'll be too many other things that happen. I mean, what's happened in four years, I think about back to July of 18, and I always wonder how we how we did it. Um, but, you know, having that CRM was something we invested in day one. So we are Dynamics CRM, and then um, at the end of this year, we'll be Dynamics Business Central um, and really unifying the stack. Do you provide leads for your sales team? Do they do their own prospecting? Is it both? It's both. Um, we believe in marketing. Um, marketing is a huge piece for us. So um, our marketing team just grew to two. So yes, we're only a small company, but we have two people in marketing. Um, and you know that marketing we look at as we're an extension of our partner group. We're an extension of being a solution provider for them 
in the Tampa Bay region, in the Florida region particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so our partners do support us with leads that are Florida-based, um, but also we develop leads. There's a lot of SEO, a lot of LinkedIn marketing. Um, LinkedIn just seems to be the most applicable for our industry. A lot of people are like, oh, what about TikTok? And I'm, I'm like, I'm sure TikTok is impressive, um, but it's very tough to talk about a Wi-Fi access point in 20 seconds. Um, you know, they kind of just look at, you know, they look pretty on the wall. Um, so for us, it's it's about understanding our audience, trying to connect with our audience, but being an extension of our partner group. Um, now, our partner group does give us support in marketing. They give us a lot of assets and things and mm-hmm. campaigns to use. Um, we have email marketing and, and email tracking, and then we know when customers click through to the website what they looked at, and it kind of feeds that back to our sales reps so they know, you know, it don't want to be creepy about it, but hey, you came to our website and you looked at Aruba. How can I help you with your Aruba initiative today? Um, and I think that's helping us kind of feed our sales reps to give them better information. So you have two people in the marketing department. What are those roles? What are those two people? So do? we have a field marketing specialist and a marketing coordinator. Uh, field marketing does a lot of our events. She handles a lot of our partnership relationships and MDF funds. And then our marketing coordinator is managing a lot of our social, um, a lot of the admin. There's a lot of administrative and time-consuming work that comes in marketing. And then we use an outside marketing company to, you know, um, videos, video editing, um, using them to kind of create graphics and things like that that we don't have. So, obviously, if you were to have a full-fledged marketing department, that's probably... 10 people. I mean, just to have one person of every skill set. Right. Um, so we're, we're utilizing them and then empower them with a marketing company on top of it to get their job. Do you have plans to grow the marketing department? Yes. I mean, for us, it's a, it's a matter of revenue. It's a matter of mm-hmm. kind of allocating, allocating out the rev, you know, as we continue to grow, we'll continue to grow out marketing. So for you, what's a typical day look like? <laughs> um, for me, uh, you know, a lot of I, I work out first thing every morning. I think that's my stress relief. I think it brings it. You know, I get to the office at eight thirty in a much better mindset than I think if I had just not had my first cup of coffee yet. So, what time do you get up? Uh, six. Okay. So six. I'm out. I'm out the door by six o'clock. So five forty-five, six o'clock. Out the door. I'm at the gym six thirty. Um, I'm at. The, I'm in the office by eight thirty. Um, and then for me, I do a lot of banking, a lot of banking and finance first hour of the morning. Plus we have our sales meetings, our sales, we have agile sales meetings. So five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the afternoon. And it's about the team talking to each other. What projects do we have going on? It's a lot about information sharing. So if I know a rep is having, you know, has a certain deal they're working on, I may reach out to them right after the meeting to try and help them with that process or reps can learn from each other. Oh, oh, you have, you know, you know, city furniture is a lot like rooms to go. What are you selling to certain city furniture that I might be able to talk to rooms to go about? So it's about sharing that information. And I'm just using two local furniture companies, mm-hmm. you know, sharing that information across verticals. Um, so reps are communicating with each other because it's hard to keep up in the CRM with what everyone is working on. So sales reps don't have that kind of time. So it's kind of a time for us to also be accountable to each other. Here's what I'm looking to get done today. Here's what I got done. Here's what I didn't get done. Here's why. You know, and, you know, they'll air their grievances like, you know, uh, a vendor's taking too long to get me my quote back or whatever. And it's a time for them to vent, um, but to share information across. Those are five-minute meetings? Those are five-minute meetings. Okay. Um, five-minute meetings. They're with smaller pieces of the team. So our consulting practice, our consulting practice has a meeting. And then our business development, our younger sales rep have that meeting. Our VPs, we meet with them once a, we meet with them once a week, more on an hour-long basis to kind of talk 
more deal flow. Do you have a VP running each division? So do you have three VPs? How many VPs? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. Middle management is probably um, my most daunting task that I'm dealing with today um, is building out middle management. Um keeping the culture um specifically with managers and this is no knock on on managers i was um you know managers always bring a little bit of a refreshed culture so getting somebody to match our core values to match our go-to-market um things like that have just been difficult i mean we were trying we've tried to grow that in-house um don't currently have somebody that's probably vying for that seat right now um so it still falls very much on brian and i we tag team it um he is you know cro or chief revenue officer so he's involved in all the deals and all the sales so he's kind of helping them manage from a sales perspective i run from the operational perspective and then for us i mean brian and i say it all the time we're the worst micromanagers on the planet um you know we look at people as you need to be professional you need to handle you know your job you know your responsibilities you know your goals you know your matrices you know what's expected hit that um and if you hit that we we have no you know, you know we really don't have much to talk about mm-hmm. um you know other than i'm here to support you in, in anything that you need um so typical day first hours finance and then it's a lot of operational um to date you know i've been doing a lot on our erp change and, and meeting with them and helping set the process and making sure those things go correctly and then it's about working with reps on different deals um different so i probably spend four hours a day on reps management of deals and helping them out you know managing people is probably my primary role throughout i would say the business day and then from five to seven o'clock or so i'm able to kind of do my administrative work um kind of the back end stuff signing contracts reading contracts etc um, yeah. so during the day my, my role is very dynamic it's very engaged with the team and then um, at night i get to kind of get some administrative stuff done partnerships can be tricky how do you have any tips or best practices for working with a partner um brian and i were blessed to have a really good working relationship before we started partnering together um and we really understood each other very well and i mean now granted i think i've learned way more in the last four years than i knew prior to that but um you know partnership agreements are very important um brian and i were all in on that um so our partnership agreement is extremely detailed extremely kind of laid out um also we you know we anointed one of our investors as our chairman so if there's ever a time that we really have a disagreement we have an independent third party that has you know that has say in which way we go we've never needed them but that's kind of the process that's in place where if we ever get to a, a crossroads and we just disagree you know practice blame is problem solving have a backbone disagree and commit that would come in we disagree we're going to go to the chairman present our case he's going to tell us which way to go and then we're going to commit to that but you've never had to do that we've never had to do it um but we're both we we both understand and and laid that out in our operation agreement to kind of say this is what happens when um so i think for partners you need to you need to foresee the potential issues you may have in the future and address how you're going to handle them now um down to you know down to even you know worst case if one of us goes through a divorce what's that look like Mm -hmm. from an equity standpoint and and part of the reason why brian and i are even in business today is our our prior company kind of you know had issues due to a divorce and the partnership wasn't ready to handle that um so i think addressing those things you know not fun it was not a fun conversation with my wife i'm sure it was not a fun conversation with his wife but 
we laid out that groundwork and, and they signed, you know, they signed that they understood how we're going to handle it. Right. Um, and, you know, this is what it means going forward, no matter what happens. So, you know, and then buy sell agreements. I mean, you have to kind of have it laid out. I mean, if anything were to happen to Brian or I, we carry life insurance and buy sell agreements. So our spouses are taken care of Imperium knows what to do. And, and, you know, there's pieces in place to make sure for us, the long term, you know, the 38 other employees of Imperium's life aren't impacted, mm-hmm. or at least the impact is minimized to the best of our ability. How big do you want to take this? You've got some investors. You plan to take on more capital, or are you going to fund it all out of cash So right flow? now, right now it's all privately funded, and like I said, our, our investors are all angel um, in terms of there's no ca- or there's no shareholder equity. Um, I would say between now and 100 million, there's no reason not to stay completely private. Um, I understand from a business perspective, when you get to that point, we'll probably have to look at, you know, is there a strategic partner that can really help us grow more significantly that makes sense? Um, That's a difficult thing right now. For me, I guess I'm focused on getting to 100. Um, This year, we'll probably land around 24 um, on projections, so 20 to 24 million. So that puts us about a quarter of the way there, but we're We've doubled in size, or we will double in size this year. So if we continue to do that, I won't, won't, won't be, long. be long. So um, it's really about managing that. Um, you know, we have some great relationships locally. That I will say, Tampa Bay is really developing a, a culture and an environment that will help entrepreneurs. I mean, one of the biggest problems we had was just getting a line of credit um, with any bank. Um, and you know, we talked to fifteen of them. I mean, I made fifteen presentations. On getting it done, and I was very blessed, you know, that finally I met a bank that kind of said, "Okay, I understand, and I I can get behind this, and here's what we can do to kind of help support you." And and that's something that I think is very different in Tampa from 2018 to 2022. Yeah, there's very much a culture of entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism here now. Um, business growth. I mean, it's a great environment for business currently. Yes. Yeah. So I think the PE the PE world is a, is a difficult world, and I think that's something entrepreneurs entrepreneurs need to educate themselves on. Um, in some ways, it really sounds great. I mean, we've seen a few of those in Tampa, where oh my god, they raised a hundred million, and then oh my god, eight months later, they're not even a company anymore. Um, so I think you know entrepreneurs need to be careful of what that looks like um, because they raised a hundred million, but I I don't know the answer, but. Knowing what I know, I'm sure their VC firm had a lot to do with why they're no longer here. Right. Um, and so choosing that right partner and, and moving forward with the right pieces is obviously the piece that, you know, every entrepreneur needs to take a look at. Um, I think, you know, Jeff Bezos made a great comment when he was like, yes, I'm the richest man in the world, but I only own 18 percent of Amazon. You know, um, you can't do it alone. Um, it really does take a team, whether it's it's individual or investors. Um, there's only so far you should probably take it on your own before working with a team that can tr- truly be beneficial. Um, so if I was to ever identify that right partner that could help us kind of move to the next level um, and go from a $100 million company to a billion dollar company, that would probably pique my interest. Nice. Well, you've built quite a business. Congratulations on your success. I appreciate you you doing this. It was good good to talk to you. Thank you. Appreciate it.